Hey, this is Shane Valenstein, the pastor at City on a Hill Community Church. I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. I hope that this podcast helps you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at cityonahillmd.org. Enjoy the message. We're in the final week of our series called The Table, and all month long, we've been focusing on moments where Jesus interacted with somebody around the table. In other words, sharing a meal with somebody around the table and what that looked like, because we realize that important conversations are had oftentimes around the table. There's something about it. It just breaks down some walls. It allows people to be a little bit more intimate, to to be more comfortable to share things with one another. And so we're looking at those conversations that Jesus had. The first week we talked about how Jesus went over to the the house of a Pharisee named Simon for for dinner. And there was an uninvited guest who showed up, this woman who was described as an immoral or a sinful woman who showed up and is just crying in the corner. And Jesus was focused on her and spent time with her and realized that she needed him. And he didn't care about whatever plans Simon had in place, but spent time with her. And then la- or two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus feeding the 10,000 people because it was about 5,000 men, about 10,000, including women and children. And we talked about how Jesus can take very little and turn it into a lot. And that is very true for our church in this time in our, in our, in our life right now. So we talked about that. And then last week, we talked about Jesus inviting himself over to the house of a wee little man named Zacchaeus and, uh, and how he spent some time with him, a chief tax collector, and uh, people were, like, very confused that he would go over to his house. And it, and it showed that Jesus loves people before he judges people. Uh, he, he cares about loving people first and foremost in, in every situation. And, and we talked about that last week. If you missed any of those, you can check them out on our YouTube page or our podcast. Uh, but uh, today I want to start by talking about, I don't know if you have a big family or a small family, but um, when you think about a big family dinner, what does it look like for you? Like maybe, maybe I remember growing up, we would always go over to my grandparents' house like on Sundays. And, and when I was a kid, every birthday, every holiday, every, and we had like for every cousin, every aunt, uncle, whoever it was, we would always get together. And it felt like we were getting together all the time at my grandparents' house for big meals and for celebrations and all those sort of times. And, and sometimes I feel like that's kind of lost a little bit. We don't always do that quite as much. In, in our world today. But growing up, it was like Sunday afternoon at grandma's house. I don't know if your family was, was that way, but I kind of experienced that a little bit as a kid. And um, for, for us growing up, there were so many family dinners, and there was so much going on. And uh, my grandmother, um, she, she's not with us anymore, but she was a, a great painter. And she would paint all of these pictures. And uh, I, every painting in my house, if you, if you come over to my house and there's a painting, my grandmother painted it herself. So she, she's very, very talented. And she actually painted a picture of all of us at the table. And I have a picture of this. So this is the picture that my grandmother painted. And this is our family growing up. I know it might be a little bit hard to see here, but let me point out a few people to you. This is my sister over here, okay? If you know my sister, my mom is up there in the white. My dad is uh, in the middle up there. I know it's not, it's not quite that clear. My brother is uh, in, the, in the back there behind the, the flowers. And this is me right over here with the shirt on, uh, and I'm going like this for whatever reason that my grandmother decided to, to paint, paint us like that. But this is, this is not what our house looked like by any means, just so you know. But my grandmother, and she painted herself with her back towards 
the, the painting because she didn't want to paint herself. But these were like aunts, uncles, my grandfather over here on the side, um, cousins. This was like our family growing up. And I remember always gathering together for these family dinners, and it was great. Now, we didn't dress up in like suits and dresses and all those sort of things. But she was creating this picture that is, and this is a painting that my parents have at their house, and it's valuable to us, and it means a lot to us because it makes me think of a time where we're like, man, when we used to just gather around, and my grandparents had a big table, we'd all sit around it, and it was great. We loved it, right? And it kind of reminds me of that this famous meal that, now I'm not comparing my family to this painting that I'm about to show you, but I'm just, I'm making a connection. Probably the most famous meal that there ever was, right? Which was the Last Supper. And, uh, and this is maybe the most famous meal in the history of the world. And this is, you know the infamous painting by, by, uh, by Leonardo da Vinci. It's, it's not very clear because it was made a long time ago, just so you know. But the picture of the Last Supper, when you see the picture, and this is something that you've seen, and this, this is something that had been recreated throughout life and different parodies of it even, right? But this infamous painting, it's a beautiful picture that is totally inaccurate of the Last Supper. Totally inaccurate. But it's a beautiful picture, right? Here's, here's some things about it that are inaccurate. Okay, meals were not eaten sitting, sitting at a table like this. It wasn't like how you and I have these chairs and we sit upright at these tables and, and have a meal. It, it, let alone, there wasn't a long, giant table like this. Side note, they're all on one side of the table, which that's just, it, I don't know, okay, so you, this, another side note, sorry. If you go to a restaurant and you're on a date and you are a side sitter with your significant other, I'm sorry, you're weird. It's just weird, okay? <laughs> right? Yeah, you can applaud that. I'm just kidding, Right? If you go and you're out with your significant other and you're sitting next to them and there's nobody on the other side of the table and you got to eat like it's not comfortable first off. And then if you think about the table that is like the next table over, you're just looking at them. It's like it's uncomfortable for everybody around you. I'm just kidding. You can do it if you want. I am not a side sitter if you didn't tell, right? But they're side sitting at this, at this picture. Nobody does that except for weirdos. I'm just kidding. Just please. I'm I don't actually think you're weird, but nobody does it. So that's not an accurate way for people to have a meal together, sitting on one side and then, every, and then nobody on, on the other side. So that's, that's one thing. Instead, meals actually were eaten while lying on like your side on the ground on the floor, which is very strange to us. But at this time, that was how they would eat meals. They would usually be on a rug. They're, they're kind of laying on the ground, on their side, on an elbow. They're not sitting in a chair like this. And it's usually a circle around a low table to the floor was how this, this culture would, would eat. There were no utensils. Um, they didn't have like forks and spoons and tongs and stuff to grab things. Instead, they would use like a flat pita-like bread to scoop up their food and, and eat it. And at Passover... It was not an eloquent banquet. This is like eloquent, right? This is like, oh, beautiful. And it's kind of like the picture I just showed you of my family, where it was this eloquent banquet. That's not how our family ate. This was not how, how they actually would eat. Actually, Passover was kept small and simple. Small and simple. There wasn't all of this stuff where people were cooking for days. It wasn't like Thanksgiving. None of that sort of stuff. Very small, very simple. So this month, 
We've been receiving communion every week with our series. That's talking about the table. At the end of every service, we've been talking about, here's communion. Let's receive communion. And communion is one of two sacraments that we, that we recognize in our church and that we practice in our church. The other is baptism. And both communion and baptism are a representation of the grace that God has provided in our lives. The grace that God gives us, communion and baptism. And so today, as we look at the Last Supper, we're going, to, we're going to make some observations that are important to us as we partake in communion. So let's remember when the Last Supper was taking place. When this meal was happening, this was right before Jesus is arrested. And we're going to celebrate Easter in, in two weeks, and there's Good Friday, right? And, and, and we know the whole story of Holy Week and what actually happens. But Jesus is having this meal with his friends, with, with the disciples, and he knows what is about to happen to him. He understands what is coming. He understands what is on the horizon. So we're going to look at, in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 17 through 30, and we're going to look at four observations in regards to the Last Supper and to communion. So did I, do I have the scripture in there, George? Yes, okay, thank you. All right, so this is what it says in Matthew 26, verse 17 through 30. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a, that, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So like I said, we're going to look at four observations from the Last Supper and from Communion. The way that Jesus goes about the Last Supper is deliberate and important. We should pay attention to it. So when, so when we think about communion, here's, here's the first thing that we have to understand. Preparation is absolutely necessary. We should prepare ourselves when receiving communion. See, Jesus, he kind of has this history of inviting himself over to people's houses, right? We talked about it last week. There's a couple other examples where Jesus is just like, I'm coming over. I'm coming to your house. And Jesus sends the disciples ahead and says, hey, go find this guy and say, I'm coming. 
and he's going to let us come. He's going he's to open his house and let us come over to his house. He's, he's saying, hey, I want to celebrate Passover with my disciples at your house. Could you imagine if that were you? All of a sudden, the, the disciples show up, and they're just like, hey, Jesus says, we're celebrating Passover at your house. I'd be like, oh, no. I need to, I need to pull out the vacuum. I need to clean the bathrooms. I need to do all this stuff. The panic. But Jesus is coming over. And like we learned in week one, Jesus does not care about your dinner plans. Does not care about whatever plans you had set aside. He knows what he's doing and he knows what he wants to do. See, every spring, the Jewish people, they remembered a time. This is what Passover is, if you didn't know. They, they remembered a time where they were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. And you know the story of, of Pharaoh and, and, uh, and Moses and the plagues in Egypt. Uh, and if you, if you grew up in church, I'm sure that you've heard this story. But Pharaoh, as you know, wouldn't let God's people go. He wouldn't let the Israelites go. Instead, he enslaved them for generations and generations. And then along comes Moses, who says, hey, I'm speaking on behalf of God. And God's saying, you need to allow people to leave. You need to allow the, the, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, to leave. And he kept saying, nope, 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 nope. And then God would send a plague. And then he would say, okay, you can leave. And then he would change his mind over and over and over again. And eventually, the only way that Pharaoh would let the people go was with the ten, tenth and final and deadliest plague. And the plague was, the angel of death would arrive. And Pharaoh said, you know what, I'm not letting anybody go. And uh, there was clear instruction that with this last plague, the firstborn son in every household would die unless the family took a, a lamb that they would sacrifice and they would take the blood of the lamb and they would wipe it over their doorway and on the sides of the doorway. And then when the angel of death came, it would see that the blood of the lamb was over the doorway. And this is why, when Je this is why Jesus is described as a lamb, because he sacrifices his, his life for us. And when the angel of death would arrive and see the blood over the doorframe, it would pass over that house and go to the next house. And then if there wasn't any blood over the doorframe, then the firstborn son would die in that house. It's a really sad story when you think about it. Um, but that was the only way that Pharaoh would allow the Egyptians to go. And then once that happened, he said, leave, get out of here. Now, he did change his mind again, but uh, that we're not going to get into the whole story of the Exodus and the Red Sea. You probably have heard it before. But that's where Passover comes from. So every spring, the Jewish people would observe Passover. They would recognize what God did. And on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is an eight-day feast, an eight-day celebration, it would begin with the observance of Passover. Now, I don't, I, I don't know if you know this, but an eight-day feast requires preparation, right? If you're going to celebrate for eight days, then that's some work you've got to do ahead of time. You've got to prepare yourself for, for what's about to happen. There's a lot of work that goes into an eight-day festival like that. And the disciples understood this, and they realized that they had some work to do. And Jesus says, hey, go talk to this guy and start to prepare Passover. Start to prepare the, the meal that, that we're going to have. So they needed to get unleavened bread. They needed to get spices, fruit. They needed to get a lamb. They needed to get more things. And they also needed to prepare the room itself because there couldn't be a trace of yeast in this room. Any crumb of bread needed to be removed. See, yeast represented the evil influence that was Egypt and that was Pharaoh that they left behind in 
Exodus. Now, I know that this all sounds very strange to us today. But this was their custom. This this was the culture. And this was a celebration and a recognition of how God had delivered them out of slavery. So this is something to be celebrated for the Jewish people. Their, Their ancestors were enslaved for generations. And now they no longer are. So Passover is a very, very important time to them. So as we can see, there's a lot of preparation that went into Passover and a lot of preparation that went into the last meal. So when you receive communion, now we don't do like a whole eight-day feast. We don't do all that sort of stuff. We, uh, we don't really celebrate Passover. It's not a bad thing, but it's not like we have a celebration like that. Um, but when you receive communion, do you prepare your heart? Do you prepare yourselves? In other words, do you even think about it before you receive it? That's the question. Because what I, I know in my life, there have been plenty of times, and what I think most of us do is we just go, oh, it's communion today. I'm just going to receive communion. I'm going to get this stale wafer, and I'm going to get this juice that's in this little cup, and I'm going to receive it. And if you go to a church, if you go to a church that you, maybe you haven't attended before, and it's your first time there, you're like, "Is it going to be grape juice? Is it going to be wine? What's what am I going to get here? What's what's the deal?" Right? Just so you know, it's grape juice on our end. But you get these two elements, and a lot of times I think we just take it and then we go, "Okay, it's communion today," and we receive it, and we don't really prepare ourselves. We don't really think about what we're actually doing. And Paul talks about. In in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about how we need to prepare our hearts to receive communion. Do not observe communion in an unworthy manner. When we come to the table, we've got to be prepared. We should consider what we're doing and and what we're receiving. This is, see, communion is not just something we do. This is not just like, oh, okay, cool. And then we just go. Communion represents everything in regards to our faith, and we should be prepared to receive it. Now, you may say, what does that mean? What does preparation look like in regards to receiving communion? Here's here's the next thing that we see from the story of the Last Supper. We need to take time to examine ourselves. Self-examination. Look at yourself. Matthew 25 Verses 20 through 21 says, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, talk about making dinner awkward. While they're eating, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. If this isn't a mood killer, I don't know what is. One of you is going to stab me in the back. You're sitting at this table with me right now. Everyone's having a good old time. Everyone's hanging out. Now, the, the, the disciples, they never understood fully what was going to happen to Jesus. Jesus knew that he's about to be arrested, tried, beaten, mocked, and ultimately crucified and resurrected. Jesus knew that was about to happen. He wasn't excited about it. And later this night, and when he goes and he prays in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, he actually asks God, if there is any other way, will you please take this cup from me? but your will be done. So Jesus knew what was coming, and he didn't want to do it, but he was willing to do it. The disciples, they've got no idea. They think, hey, we got Jesus here. He's the king. He's the Messiah. We're going to ultimately take over this place. That's the way they're thinking. 
We're going to take over. And people are going to see who Jesus actually is. And then they're sitting at this table, and they're all excited. They're all having fun. They're celebrating Passover. They're celebrating the fact that their ancestors have been freed from slavery, and now they are now free. They get to celebrate that. And then Jesus goes, oh, and by the way, one of you, one of my best friends, are going to stab me in the back. One of you are going to betray me. In other words, we got a snitch at the table. Awkward. This is uncomfortable. And in that very moment, Scripture tells us that all of the disciples then began to question themselves. All of them are like, Jesus, me? Am I going to? I would never. No, surely not I. Surely not I. Even the, they, they weren't even sure if they were going to. Like all of a sudden, they, they then questioned themselves. None of, none of them except for one had any plans of betraying Jesus. But all of them questioned whether or not they would. All of them were like, what? Are you saying I could do that? And they didn't believe that they would. But when Jesus said that, they were like, maybe I need to look at myself. Maybe I need to take a self-examination here. Maybe, maybe I need to slow down. And at this point, Judas, who we know is the one who betrayed Jesus, has already made the deal, actually just prior to the Last Supper, it tells us about Judas going and making the deal to betray Jesus. So Judas went and made that deal, and then he shows up at Passover. So he's sitting at the table, and Jesus says, one of you are going to betray me. Put yourself in Judas's shoes. Heart in his throat. Just like, oh, blank. Oh, no. What? This is not good. It's like when you, when you stabbed somebody in the back or you talked about somebody or you did something behind somebody's back and you didn't think they would ever find out. Well, he knew Jesus would ultimately find out. But at least in this moment, he didn't think Jesus was going to know at this moment what he has done. When you stab somebody in the back and you think they don't know and then you're with them and then they call you out on your garbage and you're caught red-handed and then all you're doing is just trying to figure out a way how do i get out of this that's that's where judas is at and not only is jesus confronting him but all of the disciples are there all of them his closest friends judas's closest friends family they're all sitting around this table he's got to go uh-oh and Judas then plays dumb along with the other disciples. All the other disciples are going, not me, right? Not me. And Judas is like, yeah, not me, right? Not me. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's you, you big dummy. I know. It's you. You're the one who betrayed me. And, and then I find it so weird in that passage that we just read that there's no other conversation recorded. You, like if you're in that room and you're Peter, you're Matthew, right? You're Andrew. And Jesus says, yeah, Judas, you're the one who betrays me. They're all going to be like, what the heck, man? Like, they're going to, did he stay? Did he leave? Was he kicked out? I don't, it doesn't tell us what happened. Now, ultimately, we know that he leaves, and then he goes, and he gets the Roman soldiers, and then they come and arrest Jesus later that night. But we don't know when, he, did, did, did Jesus call him out? And then Judas said, I'm gone, and he ran out the door. I don't know. It's, it's so weird to me that nothing else is recorded beyond that. But it wasn't just Jesus, uh, sorry, it wasn't just Judas who, who, who had to look at himself. All of the disciples did. And then a little bit later, it wasn't just 
Judas who was called out, but it was Peter, who's maybe the most famous of the disciples of Jesus. Peter's called out. And he says, God, I would never betray you. And Jesus says, well, actually, not only are you going to deny me, but you're going to deny me three times. Three times. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. But guess what? He allowed those disciples to still see him in his own frailty. He allowed those disciples to still sit around the table. Because Judas betrays him, Peter denies him, all the other disciples go run and hide. They all go run and hide. Once, once it goes down, once Jesus is, erected, is, is arrested and then, and then crucified, once that happens, all of the disciples go into hiding. They're terrified. They're so scared. So Jesus knows that they're all going to abandon him. They're all going to leave him, but just in, in different ways. When was the last time you examined your life? When was the last time that you sat down and looked at yourself? Not your spouse. Not your best friend. Not your children. Not your parents. Not a celebrity. When was the last time you examined you? Your life? When you looked at your own garbage and you faced the, the ways that you fall short face to face, when was the last time you did that? Do you ever or do you just choose to be ignorant? Do you just choose to say, oh, I don't like to think about this stuff. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like the way that it makes me feel. I like to feel happy all the time. So I'm just going to ignore all the stuff that I need to work on in my life. I'm just going to ignore all the ways that I fall short. And I'm just going to keep going in my life and keep doing what I want to do and just, just turn a blind eye to everything because this is just easier that way. If the, the disciples who walked alongside of Jesus, if those disciples betrayed him, denied him, and ran away from him, then surely you and I are in danger of doing the same things. Surely you and I are in trouble. If we don't take time to examine ourselves, to look at our life, if we don't take time to do that, then we're fooling ourselves. See, before you receive communion, you should ask Jesus, am I the one who betrays you? Is it me? Am I, am I the one who's denying you? Am I the one who's running away from you? Am I the one who needs to change some things about my life? Is it me, God? And if it is, please convict me in the ways that I need to be convicted. Please change me. Now, you're the one who has to do the work. You're the one who has to decide. It is, it, it, this is a dangerous prayer to pray, just so you know. This is a dangerous prayer to pray. Because if you say, God, convict me in the areas that need convicting, he will. Buckle up. And it doesn't feel good. It's not fun. But man, is it worth it. Man, is it necessary. Look at your life and examine what's going on. Examine the decisions that you're making. Examine the ways that you're living. 
and say, God, do I need to change anything? And you do that before you receive communion. Communion is, is a great opportunity when, when you get the elements in your hands and you're holding them. Because this is the way this is going to work today, okay? We're all going to come up and receive like we, like we would typically do. This, this month we've been handing it to you at the door, but today you're all going to come up to the front, you're going to receive the elements, you're going to go down the aisle, and you're going to hold on to them and we're going to sing. Every time that we typically do that, what I want you to do is examine yourself. And if that means that you sing, then sing. If that means that you pray, then pray. If that means that you sit down and you think about whatever it is that's going on in your life, then you do that. If that means that you need to grab your spouse next to you and apologize for the way you acted yesterday, then do that. Whatever it looks like. But that's supposed to be a time where you examine yourself, where you look at yourself, and you say, God, convict me. Because all that I want is to be closer to you. And then we receive the elements. The next observation that we see about the Last Supper is this. We have to understand what the, what the elements actually represents. Jesus, while they were eating, took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, take, the, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So there's two elements to communion. I know that you know this, but there are two elements to communion, the bread and the wine or the juice. And these are intentional. They represent something more. See, the bread is a representation of Jesus' body. That's what it, that's what it stands for. That, that's what it represents. And it is the symbol of sustenance, food, the bread of life. We have to eat in order to survive. Jesus is offering his body and his life as a gift for us, for you, so that you might live. That's what the bread represents, sustenance, life. And then the wine is a representation of Jesus' blood. And this is a symbol for the remission or the release of sin. That's what it means. That's what it represents. Because when Jesus shed his blood, when Jesus died on the cross and he poured out his blood for you and I, the minute that he did that was the minute that your sins were covered. The minute your sins were paid for. Now, our choice is to accept that payment or not accept it. But the price has been paid. It's kind of like with this phone call that I got a couple months ago saying, hey, we have a free church that we want to give you. It's already been paid for. And I was just like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'd rather sit here and set up and tear down every week. That's what we're doing. It's paid for. It's free of charge. Nothing, you don't have to, there's no payment you got to make. But you got to choose to accept it or not. It's your choice. It's your decision. And when the, the wine representing Jesus' blood, see, Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that you might experience the release from the penalty of sin. And the penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. His blood purchased your forgiveness. That's, it, it is unbelievable. His blood purchased your forgiveness. And when you understand this representation, Hopefully you understand that you don't take communion. You receive communion. 
You didn't take it. This was given freely to you. Instead, when we come up and we receive these elements, it is a gift handed out where we then walk back to our seat and we look and we pray and we say, I didn't do anything for this. I didn't do anything for this. Instead, I get to receive life and hope and love and mercy and grace. That's what I get to receive. See, communion was given to you. You didn't take it. And the last thing that we discover, when it comes to communion, oh, there is joyful anticipation. Joyful anticipation. In verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. See, this story is incorrectly referred to as the Last Supper. Incorrectly. See, this is, this is not the Last Supper. Rather, there's more to follow. Now, was Jesus' Last Supper here on earth? But calling it the Last Supper would be like us calling today our last service. It's our last service here, but it's not our last service. Unless Jesus comes back, which he could. So maybe it is, I don't know. We're not planning on this being our last service. Jesus, this, he knew, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine now, but I will drink it with everybody in my Father's kingdom. There is hope. See, the fellowship will continue in the kingdom of God. This is implying the resurrection of Jesus that is to come just a few days after this meal. And this, my friends, is where we get our hope from. Right here. Now, it may not be fun in the next coming days for Jesus. It may not be fun for the disciples the next, the next few days. But ultimately, it's not going to matter in the long run because there is joyful anticipation of what is to come. And this is why when you attend a, uh, a funeral service of somebody who knew Jesus, this is why there's hope. When you attend a funeral service and you're like, well, I know that this person knew Jesus, then you know that wasn't the last time you're going to see him. Instead, there is hope. There's joyful anticipation for the day that is to come. It can be hard going to a funeral where you're like, I don't know if this person knew Jesus. The good news is, the good news is, you're not judged. You're not jury. We don't know the decision that anybody makes. All that you can do is make your decision. When it comes down to it, Jesus is saying, okay, yep, this is the last time I'm going to drink of this cup, but there is more to come. It's going to look a little different. It's going to, it's going to be a little different, but this is where our hope comes from. Hope that, we, that, that what we see is, is not the end. See, Scripture tells us that hope is not what is seen, but what is unseen. Anything that we see is not hope. Now, you may see something and say, I have a vision that this particular thing will change. That's kind of what we're doing with our new church. We see the vision, and we know this is not going to always be this way. But hope is not what is seen, but what is unseen. What is to come. 
We have hope that Jesus is alive today. We have hope that we will be alive through him forever. We have hope that sin does not have victory over your life. That's what communion is. That's what it represents. The joyful anticipation of all that God has provided and will provide. It changes your life when you understand it. Prepare, examine, understand, and anticipate. That's what we should do in regards to communion. Prepare your hearts, examine your life, understand what you're about to receive, and anticipate the change that happens in your life because of Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team up as we close, and I'm going to invite uh, ushers up to, to receive, to help um, hand out communion. So this whole sermon has been about what this means and what this represents. So I don't think I need to explain it a whole lot further. But what I do want you to do is slow down, take a breath, understand what's about to happen and what you're about to receive, and know that Jesus is enough. That when we offer communion, you do not have to receive it. You don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to go through any class. You don't have to do any of that. Everybody is welcome at the table. It's open to everybody. But if you feel like, I don't want to receive communion right now, no problem. Talk to God. Pray. If you don't know God, if you don't know Jesus, and you're like, because I don't know him, I don't, I don't know if I want to receive it. I don't even know if I believe this. That's great. No problem. We're glad you're here. But this is where life change starts. This is where hope is found. And I promise you that you can go search the ends of the earth. You will not find what Jesus offers anywhere. You won't find it. You can try. And if you don't believe me, go try for yourself. You will not find the hope and the love and the life that is found at his table changed everything. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come and you're going to go out the outside aisles, down to the front, receive communion, and bring it back to your seats. If you're gluten-free, there's some gluten-free elements right here for you um, to, to, to receive. But like I said, block everything else out. Get rid of everything else. And focus on the one thing that is worthy of you, then would you come and receive it?